Let's generate our motivation. So when people work together and cooperate, they can do so much more than what they can do individually. And this goes in terms of both doing physical activities, but also in terms of cultivating the mind, taming the mind. And so, if that's the case, then it's advantageous to be with other living beings. And in that case, we have to learn how to get along with them and how to come together and make decisions in a way that is amenable. In other words, we have to give up the mind that says, I want it to be this way, I want it to be that way, I want it at this time, I don't want it at that time. So we have to give up some of our self-centered mind. And some of the preferences that we get very attached to and very stuck on, often imbuing them with some extremely important meaning that they don't have. For example, Everyone doesn't want to agree to do something at the time I want to do it, which is actually quite an insignificant thing. But our mind then elaborates on this and says, they don't respect me, they're running all over me, These people are so inconsiderate. I don't want to be with them. I don't belong with them. On and on and on. When the actual situation was some small, pretty insignificant thing. Yet we imbue a lot of ego meaning into that. So if we want to cooperate and work together with others so that we can accomplish things that we can't do by ourselves, then we have to rein in that mind. That, first of all, makes a big thing out of a small one. And second of all, imbues meaning into it that is not there.
So this is the process of purifying the mind, establishing new habits, admitting when we blow it, rejoicing when we're able to do something new. So let's cultivate the bodhicitta, or we want to work together and serve each other and serve all sentient beings together for the benefit of all beings, ourselves and all others. So have you noticed that we can do one of the bodhicitta meditations and feel so good in our meditation session? And when we stand up, the next thing that happens, somebody says, put the porridge here, and that becomes of a momentous occasion imbued with all sorts of meaning. Who is telling me to put the porridge somewhere? Who thinks they can boss me around and tell me what to do? And why do they want me to put the porridge there? it would be much better here. Don't they see that? Are they dimwits? I try to explain why the porridge is better put here than there. And they look at me like I'm crazy. What's with these people? Yeah, total dimwits. And they're also quite mean because they boss me around and they don't listen to my suggestions. So they are demeaning me. They don't respect me at all. You know, where we put the porridge is such a small thing but they can't give up their way of doing it and do it my way. And then they give me a dirty look when I insist on doing it my way because it's clear that my way is the better way. But you see, they, uh, they just don't like me. They don't respect me. But that has gone on my whole entire life. Nobody has loved me and respected me. 
So I am used to it, I accept it, because that's all these sentient beings do. But I have compassion for them, these poor idiots. What do you think? Yeah? Do you ever have something similar going through your mind? Every time we go on for like a food list together. Yeah. So, uh, Quite interesting, we have lofty aspirations, and yet the most tiny things are of incredible importance. And we dare not let anything go, because if you let a small thing go, they'll really take advantage of you. Yeah. So it's kind of like, what was the police pro- uh, policy in New York where they would arrest people for breaking windows in an attempt to keep them from robbing things? You know, you arrest them for something small and then that's supposed to uh, make them scared enough so they don't do something big later. Stop and frisk? Is that what the stop and frisk did? Yeah? So that's what we want to do, too. Correct everybody's tiny mistake. Yeah. Because if it's not corrected, they'll just keep making bigger and bigger ones. Ah, we'll send two pings. Okay. So uh, now we're going to talk about constructive actions. Yeah. Because anyway, we don't create any destructive ones, do we? It's always those other people who are argumentative and uncooperative and stubborn and who use divisive words and make fun of me, ruin all my reputation, everything good I do. But I do constructive action, so let's read about what I do. (laughs) In the hopes that everybody else here will learn something from it. Okay, but before we do that, okay, when we talked about non-virtue, okay, we went through the the ten non-virtues, yeah, and then uh, in Precious Garland, Nagarjuna uh, added three more things to avoid to it, okay? So first one was intoxicants. Uh, because 
When you get intoxicated, you can't think clearly. Okay? So that one's not too difficult to understand why you're abandoning. You should abandon it. That's if you're not intoxicated and can think clearly, then you can understand. (laughs) The second one is to abandon wrong livelihood. In the context of the lay people, this means dishonest um, business practices, not paying uh, the people that you own money, owe money to, overcharging people, okay, breaking contracts, uh, you know, kind any kind of business practice that is manipulative and taking advantage of other people, okay? So that's for lay people. For monastics, yeah, we don't work for money to earn our livelihood. So what it refers to is how do we uh, procure the four requisites for life, food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. So regarding that, there's... um, the five wrong livelihoods that we should abstain from, uh, you know, in terms of getting our four requisites. So the first one is hinting. Yeah. So I don't know about you, but I was kind of often taught as a kid that it's not polite to ask somebody for something directly, and it's much more polite to hint. So you should hint, yeah, and then they, the other people can decide whether to get it for you or not. But in Buddhism, hinting is considered wrong livelihood. Okay? So hinting is like, um, oh, yeah, last year I had this new winter jacket. It was really good. It kept me very, very warm. But the cat started sleeping on it, and it's all covered with cat fur now. And it smells like the cat. And winter is coming, and it's going to be cold soon. Hint, 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 you know what I need. Okay? Yeah, so hinting. Uh, The second one is flattery. Yeah. You got me that really nice jacket last year. You're so kind. That jacket must have been very expensive. And I really appreciate how you, you know, sacrificed from your what you could get yourself to get me that really nice jacket. Okay, you're such a kind, generous person. So if you really mean that, it's not flattery. But if it's a way to get them to think that you're such a wonderful person because you think they're wonderful and uh, you you need another jacket, then that becomes flattery. Okay? The third wrong livelihood is putting somebody in a position where they can't say no. Okay? So you have a 
a big thing, a big fundraiser for some, you know, virtuous project. And, you know, so-and-so offers $500, and that person offers six, and, you know, you're with a bunch of people, and you know how much they all offered, and there's somebody who hasn't pledged yet, and you say to that person, you know, well, Joe over here is offering 500, and Susan's offering six, and Harry's offering seven. How much are you going to offer? Yeah, he can't say $10. Yeah, you're putting them in a position where they can't say no. They can't say something truthful, you know, from their heart. The other one is, okay, I just had it in my mind. There's two more. Um, Okay, anyway, one of them is pretending to be something you're not. Okay, so when the benefactors and the lay people around, I am such a kind monastic so considerate, so helpful, you know, doing things for people, especially for these lay people who come here who, and some of them, you know, they really like me. They want to be my own personal uh, sponsor. And, you know, what's wrong with that? So, uh, you know, we act really nice when they're around. And then when they're not around, we sleep late, we don't do our chores, even though they're on, we're on the, the rota, you know, we are cranky and uncooperative. Okay, so it's basically hypocrisy, huh? pretending to be something we're not. And then, what's the one I am missing? What? Yes, giving a small gift to get a bigger one. Okay. It's commonly known as bribing, but we don't bribe people. We give them a present, you know. You know, that jacket that you gave me last year, I'm really appreciative for it. And I just wanted to give you this small little gift, yeah, to show my appreciation for that jacket and the winter boots and, you know, paying for my airfare to go here and there. And, uh, you know, it's just, just a little present to say thank you. Yeah. And what is it? It's you give a small gift to get a big one. Okay. So all these are quite easy to do. Yeah, they, you know, they're quite easy to do um, because so often we want something from someone and we don't want to ask straight for it because that seems kind of greedy and not very respectful. So we do one of these other ones. Yeah, so that that is... Um, Wrong livelihood for monastics. Okay, then the the third uh, thing that Nagarjuna added to the ten 
was um, harming others. And he left it as a wide open thing, harming others physically, harming them verbally, harming them mentally by just going over and over and over in our mind about how obnoxious they are, how uncouth they are, how we need to help them by giving them a taste of their own medicine. Okay, so those are three other things that it's good to abandon in addition to the ten non-virtues. Okay, so that now we'll do the, the ten constructive ones, and at the end of that, there's three more uh, that Nagarjuna mentioned in uh, Precious Garland. Okay, so the Buddha emphasized, we're on page 250, the Buddha emphasized the disadvantages of poor ethical conduct and the benefits of good ethical conduct. So this is from the longer discourses in the Pali tradition. So the Buddha said, Householders, there are these five perils to someone of poor ethical conduct, of failure in ethical conduct. What are they? First, he suffers great loss of property through neglecting his affairs. So if you don't, you know, take care of your your affairs by doing things in an honest way, then you're going to lose your property. Second, he gets a bad reputation for immorality and misconduct. Okay? Um, You don't pay your employees and you're going to have a bad reputation. Uh, Third, whatever assembly he approaches, he does so differently and shyly. Okay, so he doesn't feel comfortable with anybody because of having committed a lot of non-virtue. Fourth, he dies confused with a lot of regret. Fifth, after death, at the breakup of the body, he arises in an unfortunate state, a bad state, in suffering and hell. Okay, so it takes an unfortunate rebirth. These are the five perils to someone of poor ethical conduct. So when we see people of poor ethical conduct, even though in this life, they may appear successful and powerful and rich and so on. Yeah. What's actually going on yeah, is something different, and they will experience the results of their own actions in the next life, or maybe also in this life. It depends. Householders, there are these five advantages to someone of good ethical conduct and of success in ethical conduct. So don't hate the people who have, un, you know, have uh, bad ethical conduct. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the five advantages. Uh, what are they? First, through careful attention to his affairs, he gains much wealth. Okay, so with good ethical conduct, you do things on time, you do them honestly, you don't try and pull the wool over someone's eyes, and as a result, 
uh, you gain wealth and people want to do business with you afterwards. Second, he has a good reputation for morality and good conduct. And uh, although sometimes in our modern culture it seems like nobody really cares about having a good reputation for morality and, and virtuous conduct, there still are some people that care about this. Okay? And uh, I was just listening to an interview of one evangelical minister who uh, used to be very much on the side of the religious right. And he began to look at what he was advocating and what he was doing and realized that a lot of it did not correspond with his own ethical standards. Yeah. And because he was saying, you know, if, if we call ourselves Christians, if we were evangelical, then, uh, you know, because I guess in the Bible that uh, the evangelical, it meant good news and it really emphasized uh, people helping the impoverished, helping the sick. Yeah, so if you're, he realized, if, wow, you know, if you're a real Christian and a real evangelical, then, you know, politically, you would want, uh, you know, a safety net for people, you would want Medicare, you would want good education, you would want health care, yeah, you uh, would take uh, the, the people who are arriving at the borders, who are refugees or what for whatever reason they're coming, and take care of them. They're travelers and they're lost and they need help. So he began to see that actually he was not living according to the ethical standards of what the actual meaning of an evangelical Christian was. And so he's starting to speak about that now amongst people. Yeah. Because it always, I never understood. We got one of the uh, flyers we got from somebody who was running for county commissioner in our county. It was a big red one, you know. And the letters said, America, God, guns. Keep it red. I'm going, wow. Yeah, God and guns right next to each other. And I was thinking, I wonder what God would say about that. And it's kind of a good thing he isn't around. But, you know, if you believe in God, what would God say about collecting guns? Yeah, I, I don't think God would advocate that. Yeah. So, you know, there are some people that, you know, think about these things amongst many who don't. <laughs> okay, third, whatever assembly that he approaches, he does so with confidence and assurance. 
So he's had good ethical conduct. He has nothing to fear going in front of other people. They're not going to call him out for doing nasty things or harming others. Fourth, he dies unconfused. So he has a reason to rejoice in his life because he he knows he uh, created more kindness in the world than there was before. And fifth, after death, at the breaking up of the body, he arises in a good place, a heavenly world. So he has a fortunate rebirth. These are the five advantages to someone of good ethical conduct and of success in ethical conduct. So we restrain ourselves from acting harmfully to benefit ourselves and others, not by thinking that the Buddha commanded us to do so, Okay, but because we see that's the right thing to do. For example, our doctor may advise us to have a low-fat diet. Even though we like food with a lot of fat, we follow his advice, not out of duty, but because we know it is for our own long-term benefit. So the same thing when the Buddha gives advice, we don't follow it, you know, because... If I don't, I'm disobeying the Buddha and I'm going to hell and, you know, this this kind of thing. And the Buddha's the authority. I better just shut up and and do something. But um, we we follow the Buddha's guidance because we know it's for our own long-term benefit. Yeah, And the Buddha's not trying to make us do something that will harm us. In the same way, when the doctor tells us to have a low-fat diet, he's not trying to make us suffer. Yeah? It's to help our health. Abandoning destructive actions because we know their harm is like a clever animal who sees some food but does not eat it because he senses it may be a trap that will bring him suffering. Okay? So like that. When a mosquito lands on your arm, instead of swatting it, shoo it away. This action of refraining from killing is constructive karma and is the cause for attaining a precious human life. I must admit, however, that sometimes mosquitoes really irritate me and I'm tempted to slap them. Nevertheless, I restrain myself and later I'm happy that I did. Then I ask my attendant to please put better screens on the windows. Okay? So just the action of refraining from killing, that itself is a virtuous action. So the ten paths of constructive actions are consciously restraining ourselves from engaging in the ten destructive ones. So you're in a situation where you could do one of the Ten, one or more of the ten destructive ones, and you look at the situation and you decide, no, I'm not going to do that. Okay? So when faced with a situation in which we could lie, we remember its disadvantages and decide not to do it. Abstaining from a non-virtuous action itself is a virtuous karma. The Pali tradition delineates three types of abstention that apply to the seven physical and verbal non-virtues. 
So these are three ways to abstain from destructive actions. The first is called natural abstention, and this is restraining ourselves from non-virtuous actions because we have learned as children to avoid them. So our parents taught us not to lie, and knowing that not lying is not good, we develop the habit of speaking truthfully. While virtuous, this restraint is not necessarily stable. Okay? If we face strong peer pressure or lose mindfulness, we may act destructively. Okay, so we do, it's a natural abstention because that's what we learned as a kid. And so we kind of do it automatically without really thinking so much about that. But it's not stable because if somebody comes along with a really good argument to do its opposite, which is a destructive action, then our, you know, our mind is not firm at, at abstaining from the action, and we may very easily go along with the other person. Okay, the second kind of abstention is abstention by adopting precepts. Okay, and that occurs by consciously and deliberately taking precepts to abstain from harmful actions. These precepts include the five lay precepts, monastic precepts, and the eight one-day precepts. Alternatively, we may make a strong determination to restrain from the seven physical and verbal non-virtues. Taking precepts reinforces natural abstention because when we are tempted to act harmfully, remembering the precepts and our preceptor strengthens our resolve to act virtuously. Okay, so if we've taken precepts in the presence of a preceptor and by visualizing the Buddha, when a situation comes up where we could easily break them and when we're tempted to because there's some pleasure on the other side if we do so, then we're able to abstain um, because we respect the Buddha, we respect uh, our preceptor, we respect ourselves, okay, that mental factor of integrity, yeah. We don't want to break our precepts, be not just because it's a bad thing to do, but because we understand that by going against our ethical conduct, yeah, we're putting the seeds of non-virtue in our own mind stream, and that will ripen in a suffering experience. And we think, I already have enough seeds of non-virtue and enough future suffering experiences awaiting me. I don't want to create any more. And so we abstain from the action. <clears throat> Okay, then the third is abstention through eradication. And that is accomplished by attaining the Arya path, becoming a stream enterer, once returner, non-returner arhat, or an Arya bodhisattva. And as an Arya, then eradicating particular defilements. As we eliminate levels of defilement from our mind, they no longer cause us to, trans to transgress 
precepts. So this is the best way to abstain from non-virtue, by gaining the Arya's realizations, because then, you know, we can obliterate the afflictions that cause the negative actions. So the three mental paths of virtue are three virtuous mental factors when they are strongly developed. Okay, so just like the three um, mental non-virtues are, uh, they're the mental states of afflictions, yeah, that are strongly developed. These are three virtuous mental uh, mental factors. Non-covetousness. Okay, so this is interesting. To, it's important to understand what it means. Non-covetousness is the mental factor of strong non-attachment. It is not just the absence of attachment, but a mind that actively does not seek more and better. Okay? So it's not a thing of, uh, you know, uh, I have no attachment to these tissues uh, because they... I don't need them now, so sure, you can have them if you want them. It's not just an absence of attachment. It's, it's a mind that's uh, saying, I, I don't want more, I don't want better, that's not the purpose of my life. I'm not here to accumulate 25 uh, you know, bad things of tissues so that I will have enough for, uh, you know, a few weeks for my drippy nose, and uh, I won't go lacking in tissues, okay? So whatever it is that you're attached to, um, you know, having a mind that, that is actively saying, I don't want more, I don't want better, I don't have to possess this. So that's what non-attachment is, okay? So it temporarily frees the mind from greed, and leads to generosity and the relinquishment of sensual desire. Okay, and you can see why when we're not attached things, then we can become generous. Non-malice is the mental factor of strong non-hatred. So this is not just the absence of hatred, but it's loving kindness. The mental factor of non-hatred is love. Okay, don't get confused by the language and think it's just, uh, you know, kind of having a neutral mind and not being mad at someone. Okay, but it's actually the totally opposite, loving them. <coughs> Non-confusion yeah, prevents uh, and contradicts confusion. It is related to right view and wisdom and understands that our actions have an ethical dimension and bring results that ourselves, that we ourselves will experience. So non-confusion has some awareness of and respect for and wisdom regarding uh, what constitutes virtue and what constitutes non-virtue. Okay. The Buddha also describes ten virtues as doing constructive actions. Okay, so it's not just abandoning the not the destructive actions. 
It's also doing constructive actions. So someone who abstains from killing dwells compassionately towards all living beings. Abandoning divisive words means he unites those who are divided and encourages those who are in harmony. So you can see that it's the it's actively doing the opposite of those non-virtues. It's not just abstaining from doing them. Okay, although abstaining from doing them is a virtuous action. Someone who relinquishes harsh speech speaks words that are gentle, pleasant to hear, endearing, heartwarming, courteous, agreeable to many folk, and pleasing to many folk. And it's so nice being around people like that, isn't it? Abandoning idle chatter, a person speaks at the right time in accordance with the facts and of matters that are beneficial. His talk is opportune, helpful, moderate, and meaningful. So it's not somebody who just chatters for the sake of chatter, who talks about all sorts of ridiculous things and makes you distracted and consumes your time. And it's not us acting that way towards other people either. Okay. So talking about, you know, where the latest shopping deals are and, uh, you know, the latest sports uh, events and, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. So someone who abandons uh, maliciousness has pure thoughts and intentions, such as may these beings be free of enmity, free of anxiety. May they be untroubled and live happily. Okay? So the, not, the virtuous action that is the opposite of malice is this one, okay? And you can see when, you, when you, know, you practice thinking like that, your mind is so much more relaxed and so much happier than when you think about how to divide people that are in harmony because you're jealous that somebody is paying attention to someone and not paying attention to you or whatever it is. In short, doing the opposites of the 10 paths of destructive actions also constitutes practicing the 10 paths of constructive actions. We mindfully save life, protect others' property, and promote fidelity in relationships. We speak truthfully, harmoniously, kindly, and at appropriate times. Our thoughts are generous, friendly, and wise. Okay, so that's all virtuous actions. Uh, So Nagarjuna added to those three, okay, um, to practice generosity, in whatever way we can, giving material goods, giving help, giving uh, advice and or consoling someone, teaching the Dharma, you know, being generous in in some way. Um, 
to uh, the second one is honoring the worthy. Okay, so this is another virtuous action that, you know, we kind of forget about in our culture. Honoring the world, the worthy, who does that? I want to get ahead of them, and I want to have a better uh, reputation than them. And I want to put them down so that other people will think I'm better than they are. Okay? So uh, we have to get over those kind of thoughts. Yeah? Honoring the worthy means, you know, people who have good qualities, to respect them for the good qualities that they have. And to really learn to rejoice that some people are better than us. Yeah? I mean, it really is good that people are better than us. Just think of what would happen if we were the best ones in the world. Okay, and then the third one, uh, you know, virtuous thing to do is to cultivate love. So to practice cultivating the wish for others to have happiness and the causes of happiness. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we wish others to get what they want. Okay? Because lots of times what people want is not actually conducive to their own happiness. Okay? Can you think of of things? You know, somebody who weighs 400 pounds and they want to get a hot fudge sundae at at, uh, you know, 32 fla- 31 flavors. So is cultivating love and wanting to give them the happiness of a hot fudge sundae, is that love? Is that really taking care of somebody? Yeah. So, it, you know, it doesn't mean that we always do what, what somebody wants. But it means that in our heart... We care about people in the long term, and we want them to have happiness in the long term. Okay, then the Pali tradition further lists ten bases of meritorious deeds to practice. So here are ten to practice. Generosity, ethical conduct, meditation, okay, reverence, So showing respect to those deserving of respect. Service, offering, you know, our body, speech, and mind in service. Dedicating merit, rejoicing in others' virtue. Listening to Dharma teachings, teaching the Dharma, and straightening out our views. In other words, developing correct views. So those are ten further actions that are listed in the Pali Canon. And you can see that um, it makes sense. I mean, all those, who would argue with those? Yeah, I mean, they're definitely virtuous when when you look at them. Contemplating the harmful and wholesome actions enables us to develop wisdom that knows what to abandon and what to practice. This wisdom enables us to make wise decisions in our lives 
and eliminates the confusion of not knowing what is best to do. In doing so, it prevents problems and remorse. Okay, so really spending some meditation time uh, contemplating the ten non-virtues, what the four uh, parts are that need to be complete in order to make a whole one, what, and what kind of results they bring. We're coming to that in, a few, in the next chapter. Um, you know, really contemplating what are, what are non-virtues, what are virtues, uh, making examples from what we see other people do, and learning from that, you know, what we definitely don't want to do, and the kinds of actions that, you know, we look at and we go, wow, I would really like to be the kind of person who acts like that. Yeah. And I think that's one of the values of having role models in society is, you know, we can look at their behavior and it, it makes us think, you know, I'm not like that now, but I want to be like that. Okay. So last night at the Democratic uh, Convention, they did a, um, like a, what do you call it, a salute or something uh, to John Lewis. You know, and told about his life and showed many pictures of what he was doing and talked about his character. And I don't know about you, but, you know, he's an incredible role model for me. I would like to be able to be like him. Yeah. Violence, physical harm scares me. You know, he was willing to suffer that for something, uh, you know, bigger than himself. So I would like to be able to do that someday. So, uh, you know, having these kind of, of role models is, is really important. Okay. And, and really, and so my point is really contemplating what is virtue, what is non-virtue. If I do this, what are the results in this life and next life? If I do that... What are the results in this life and next life? And then we really build up our own wisdom so that in our life, when we encounter certain situations where we're faced with a choice, instead of just following what the afflictions want, our wisdom can say, oh, doing that is non-virtuous. I'm not going to do it. Yeah? Doing this is virtuous. I'm going to make this decision and go in this direction. Okay, So it helps us tremendously in avoiding getting ourselves into a bunch of problems. Okay, And it helps us uh, not do things that we later regret. It helps us not do things that bring us a bad reputation, you know, uh, and 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 so all these disadvantages of you know being shy about going into groups because we're you know we don't feel good about how we acted you know, because we just had no idea of virtue or non-virtue or we had an idea but it wasn't very strong and so we just followed the afflictions so really spending some time you know in your meditation on these is really good. 
it helps a lot, uh, helps us a lot to keep our precepts. Mm-hmm. Soon after the Buddha's son Rahula became a monk, the Buddha explained to him that there are three phases to any action. The time before doing the action, the time of doing the action, and the time after completing it. And he counseled Rahula to act only after repeated reflection rather than impulsively. This thing of impulsive decisions, when you look around, yeah, and you see what people do based on making impulsive decisions, and you see the jams they get themselves into, and then when you look at your own life and think of what you did making an impulsive decision and what the results of that were, yeah. So spending some time really thinking of that is is very good too. It makes us slow down and think about what we're doing. Yeah. My generation, you know, was if it feels good, do it and act spontaneously. In other words, something comes into your mind and you just do it. Because if you are monitoring what you're doing, then you are inhibited. Yeah. You're inhibited because you have you know, do's and don'ts and threats of punishment. And so in an attempt to throw all of that out, it was act spontaneously and do what comes in your mind because that is being uninhibited. And this is how worldly people define uninhibited. From a Buddhist viewpoint, being under the control of our afflictions, is being inhibited. But from a worldly viewpoint, acting out your afflictions when they pop in your mind is being spontaneous and, you know, and liberated and, you know, not inhibited. It's being uninhibited. Yeah. So you can see uh, the Dharma perspective, the worldly perspective are, are really different. You know? And sitting and thinking about, you know, making a decision. If I do this, you know, w- will it enable me to keep my ethical conduct better versus if I make that decision, will that help me, you know, be more, have a better, more honest life? You know, contemplating those things from a worldly viewpoint, that's being puritanical. Yeah, you're inhibited, you are afraid of punishment, you are puritanical, you're trying to be goody two-shoes. Yeah, right. So, um, yeah, so we can really see how Dharma thought is uh, very different than worldly thought. Okay, so before beginning the action, the Buddha advised asking ourselves two questions that would enable us to decide wisely whether to do the action or not. So the first uh, question has several parts. So will this action that I wish to do bring harm to myself, to others, or to both? So in this life, will it bring harm? 
Will it create negativity that, so that in future lives it will bring harm to myself, to others, or to both? Okay. What will be the most likely immediately result of this action? And what will be the long-term results of this action? So really thinking about that before we do things. Yeah. Even if the action seems insignificant and won't adversely affect someone else, will it corrupt my mind in a way that will later lead my ethical conduct to degenerate? degenerate? So the action seems insignificant. Nobody else knows about it. It doesn't hurt anybody else. But will it cause my own mind to degenerate so that in the future I will have bad habits and, you know, do get into more and more non-virtuous activities? Okay, so that's one kind of set uh, of questions to, to ask ourselves. And then the second is, is this a non-virtuous action that will bring painful results? So here is asking ourselves squarely, is it virtuous, is it not? Here, the quality of our motivation is a crucial factor. So we should examine as honestly as we can what our actual intention is. Okay, so really, you know, watching our motivation and from that discerning if we do this, is if it's going to be virtuous or non-virtuous. If we do that, will it be virtuous or non-virtuous? So if you get really familiar with this kind of thing, when it comes to making decisions in your life, uh, you don't sit on the fence as much, Yeah. I think we often sit on the fence when we're trying to figure out what is going to bring us more worldly happiness. And we don't know, will this bring us more worldly happiness, or will that, or will that, or will that, or will that. And we get confused because we don't know which one will bring us more happiness. So we sit on the fence and we get confused. Whereas... If we have a good understanding of the law of karma and its effects, we understand what's virtuous and what's not in terms of the action, in terms of our motivation. We really have great conscientiousness and want to keep good ethical conduct. Then that becomes the criteria for making the decision. How can I keep the best ethical conduct? Okay. And, and that, when we have this knowledge inside of ourselves, then we can just examine and figure out, you know, which choice enables us to create more virtue and avoid more non-virtue. And then we do it. We don't sit on the fence, kind of, you know, what's going to bring me more happiness and and this kind of stuff. We just already have our criteria, we examine the situation, we do it. So I know for myself, what, I've, what I often use when I have to make decisions is first, you know, which 
decision will enable me to keep my precepts better and, and maintain good uh, ethical conduct, and which decision will help me to uh, generate bodhicitta or perhaps inhibit me from generating bodhicitta. So I often, you know, assess possible decisions from uh, those two things, those two criteria. Yeah. And if the mind says, uh, what will give you more praise? Uh, I throw that mind out. Or if the mind says, hmm, what will give you more gifts and presents? I try and throw that mind out too. Okay. While doing the action, we should continue to hold these questions in our mind. If we see that the action will bring harm to ourselves or others, or if we determine it is non-virtuous, we should stop immediately. It may seem strange to stop when we say, when we <laughs> to stop what we are saying in mid-sentence. But it is better than finishing the comment and having to deal with the painful consequences afterwards. Although I don't know about you, I will notice in the middle of a sentence that, uh, like, why am I saying this? I should be quiet and I keep on talking. Yeah, it would actually be much better if I shut my mouth. Yeah. After we have completed an action, so remember, Buddha was telling Rahula before the action, during the action, afterwards. So after completing the action, we should review it with the two questions as our guide. If we realize in hindsight that the action was non-virtuous, we should reveal and confess it in our evening purification practice or tell a wise Dharma friend or our Dharma teacher. Then we should make a strong determination not to do that action again and undertake restraint. But if we realize that the action was constructive, we should rejoice, dwell happily, and continue training in that way. And give ourselves a pat on the back. I was tensing, I was tempted to tell that guy off, but I didn't. You know, now I just have to work on my anger. <laughs> yeah, but at least I didn't tell that person off. Okay, so now the weight of karma. What makes an action heavy? What makes it light karmically? And there are many uh, different lists of this, but they have very similar, um, similar qualities. Okay, so not all constructive and destructive actions are equal in terms of the weight of the latencies they leave on our mind stream or the strength of the experiences they bring. Tsongkhapa slides five criteria that make destructive actions heavy. Okay, so first of all, the strength of our attitude. For example, lying with a strong wish to cause another harm is heavier than acting with a weak intention. Okay, that makes sense, doesn't it? Even in courts of law, you know, how, how you are seen depends a lot on the strength of 
what your, your attitude is, your motivation is, and the strength of it. Okay, the second is the method of doing the action. This is also taken into consideration in, in courts of law. So uh, this, in, and what my purpose in talking about courts of law is just to say that you can see that this is kind of a regular way human beings think that is supported by multiple religions. Yeah. Okay, so the method of doing the action. So this includes doing the action repeatedly, doing it ourselves, encouraging others to do it, delighting in it, planning it for a long time, and relishing having done it. So those are all uh, qualities of, you know, how we've, the method of doing the action. And an example uh, also is killing someone by first humiliating and torturing them. Yeah, so instead of just killing them outright, you torture them physically, you torture them mentally. Okay. Hey, then the third thing that makes the karma heavy is a lack of an antidote. So that makes destructive action heavier. Examples include when the person does little, if any, constructive actions at other times. Yeah. So if it's a person who, who just is very used to doing non-virtue, okay, uh, so that constitutes this lack of an antidote. Yeah, someone who repeatedly engages in harmful actions is not interested in avoiding harmful actions, isn't interested in purifying them once they've been committed, and has no uh, has little sense of their own moral integrity or consideration for others. Okay. So, you know, this kind of person, there's no antidote or very weak antidote in their mind to any non-virtuous actions because they, their minds, they do non-virtue regularly. They don't even notice it. They don't confess it. They don't feel bad about it afterwards. They don't purify. Okay, so like that. Then someone, uh, or, or not someone, but the action of holding wrong views makes the uh, action heavier than doing it with ordinary ignorance or confusion. Okay? So if you hold wrong views that specifically, uh, you know, are negating what exists or misunderstanding what is virtuous and what's non-virtuous, uh, that's much heavier than just uh, being ignorant about virtue and non-virtue, okay? Because, the, why? Because the wrong views gives you a philosophical backing and justification for uh, destructive actions. So that makes the destructive actions much heavier, you know? Because you you have a you know you have your whole reason why I am entitled to do this, yeah. It, it's kind of like you know somebody who in one of the states that has a stand your ground law, you know, and that guy says stand you know it's it's a law whereby 
if uh, you feel you're in danger, you can shoot someone. Okay, you don't have to retreat first. You don't have to warn them. You can be aggressive. Okay, so let's say you're from one of those states and you think this is a really good law, and it is totally legal. You know, here is somebody. Uh, you know, some kid who is uh, peeking in my garage, and I don't know why they're peeking in my garage uh, and what kind of mischief they're up, up to, but it is legal in my state, and, you know, I feel like my home is uh, being threatened and my property is being threatened, so uh, I can take out a shotgun and shoot that kid, and, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong legally and there's nothing wrong morally. Okay. And this is, you know, we read about many of the stand your ground cases and this is exactly what people are thinking. Yeah. So euthanizing an animal with the thought to put it out of its misery is not as heavy as doing it with the strong view that rebirth and karma and its effects do not exist. Okay? So somebody who just says, there's no rebirth, there's no karma, I can, let me just kill this animal, get it out of its pain, you know? And also because I don't like to watch it in pain, I don't want to watch it die. So let's just get this over and done with. That's very different than someone who's, who thinks, you know, there is rebirth, there is virtue and non-virtue, but, you know, I, I just, you know, I want to euthanize the animal. So, you know, it's, it's not good to euthanize the animal, but doing it with that kind of motivation is not as heavy as doing it with the mind that thinks, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. In the latter case, the person is philosophically convinced that a harmful action is without fault. So they filled with wrong views. Okay, then another factor that makes the karma heavy is the weight of the action. So criticizing our parents, spiritual teachers, those with dharma realizations, and the poor or needy, is much heavier than criticizing other sentient beings. Okay, someone may, uh, so this is the object of the action. So who are we doing the action against? Yeah, there are certain living beings who, uh, for us, uh, are, are stronger karmic fields. Okay, so. Uh, our parents, because of the kindness they've shown us in this life, bringing us up, giving us the body. Spiritual teachers who show us the path to awakening. Uh, people with dharma realizations who keep the dharma alive in the world. Okay, the poor or the needy. So uh, that they're called the field of uh, suffering. Yeah, so we've been doing actions towards them. So if we create virtue towards any of these fields, the virtue is stronger. If we create non-virtue, it is stronger too. 
Our parents are strong objects for the creation of karma owing to their kindness in giving us life. Spiritual teachers are powerful objects because they lead us on the path. And the poor and sick are strong objects because of their need. However, offering to, uh, oh, however, owing to the power of holy objects, any action done in relation to high bodhisattvas or images of Buddhas and bodhisattvas has one aspect that can be the condition for attaining liberation. Okay, Killing a human being, a large animal, a fetus, relatives, or holy objects, or holy beings, is heavier than killing others. Yeah, And then this thing of holy objects, high bodhisattvas, images of uh, the Buddhas, Dharma texts, and so on. Okay. So, uh, because they're the, of the power of the object, doing virtue in relation to them creates a stronger virtue. Uh, same with acting destructively. Okay. So, generally speaking, the seven physical and verbal non-virtues, of the seven physical and verbal non-virtues, killing is the heaviest, with each successive non-virtue being lighter than the previous one. So this is talking generally in terms of the nature of the action. Of course, when you apply the four criteria that makes it make it complete, then that's going to affect whether it's a complete action or it's incomplete. When you go through these five uh, things, uh, that make an action heavier, that's going to influence it. So this kind of statement is just talking about the action in general without applying any of these other conditions. Okay, so this order is dependent on the amount of suffering the other beings experience. Okay, so that's why killing is the heaviest, because everyone cherishes his or her life more than anything else and suffers most when it is taken from them, while the suffering we experience from idle talk is comparatively minor. Of the three mental virtues, it's the opposite, okay? Um, wrong views, the last one, is the heaviest, then malice, then and covetousness is the lightest one. Okay, so again, wrong views uh, is, is the heaviest because we then have that philosophical justification, which means we've thought about something, we've analyzed it in a completely confused way, come to a wrong conclusion. We are ego invested in our wrong conclusion and we'll probably use it to create further non-virtue. Okay, so that's what makes it heavy. Although idle talk is the lightest of the three, uh, lightest of the f four verbal non-virtues, it should say four instead of three. Mark that, yeah. Um, it is dangerous because it gives rise to so many other afflictions. When someone relates a story of either romance or war, both the storyteller and the listener 
generate attachment or anger, which in turn could provoke them to act with harm verbally and physically. Okay? We were talking the other day about uh, people who hear conspiracy theories, you know, and talking about conspiracy theories would be considered idle talk, but then it's quite dangerous because people believe these things and then they go out and they act, you know, under that belief, okay? And so one example we were talking about was you might have remembered there was and still is this big conspiracy theory that Hillary Clinton runs a, um, a pedophilia organization in the basement of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C., and it is part of a satanic cult that is trying to harm Trump, yeah, um, along with the deep state that is trying to harm him, okay? And, uh, oh, so I was watching a documentary about Infowars, you know, Alex Jones's thing, and because uh, he was a powerful proponent of this conspiracy theory and talked so with so much emotion about these poor children that are being trafficked by Hillary Clinton and on and on and on. And it showed in the documentary, one man was driving all the way up to Washington, D.C. with his assault rifle and walked into the pizza place, you know, because he wanted to stop those people who were doing the pedophilia ring because he believed what Alex Jones was saying in, 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 on Infowars, okay? So that's it's actually, it's a perfect uh, example of how idle talk can be really harmful, yeah? And get people, you know, just all revved up and ready to commit non-virtues. Okay, when someone relay, okay, I read that. Uh, for this reason, spiritual masters recommend that when with others we should guard our speech and when alone we should guard our mind. Makes sense, doesn't it? When with, we're with others, watch what we say. When we're alone, watch what's going on in our mind. Okay, so let's pause here. There's questions or comments. Um, can you explain the sentence at the top of 255? However, owing to the power of holy objects, any action done in relationship to high bodhisattvas mm. or images of Buddhas and bodhisattvas has one aspect that can be the condition for attaining liberation? Yeah. So this is uh, something. We found the citation. It's it's in uh, Lamrim Chenmo. But the idea is that with um, uh, holy beings, they have made aspirations to, uh, to help sentient beings. So whatever kind of karmic, uh, um, whatever kind of karma we create in relation to them, it establishes some kind of karmic connection. 
so that we will be benefited from meeting them again in the future or meeting the Dharma again in the future. Okay? So it kind of, the way I think of it is, you know how you can look at different things and they impact your mind just by seeing them even though you don't spend a lot of time thinking about them? Or you could meet a person or see a certain picture of something and it can really impact you strongly even though you didn't spend a lot of time with it. And that has to do with, you know, in this case, the power of the holy object, somebody uh, who has realizations or, you know, a statue, a tonka, um, depicting in, in physical form the realizations of, of the holy beings, then, you know, we have uh, whatever kind of contact we have with them. It leads some kind of uh, seed on our mind stream that enables us to have some connection with the holy beings and with the Dharma in future lives. Yeah. And so they say that's a karma that will lead to liberation. And it's by the power of the holy object. You know, usually actions are virtuous and non-virtuous, and the weight has to do with us on our side, but this is something different. I think I remember hearing something like it's better to harm a a Buddha or Bodhisattva than to have no contact at all because then you make that connection and they yeah. can help you. Is, yeah, is some that people can say an that. idea yeah. that's mm-hmm. sound? Yeah. Yeah, that, that isn't an excuse to harm a Buddha or a Bodhisattva. But, yeah. Uh-huh. I'd like to check my understanding about some of the things that you've talked about in the last two weeks with an example that I won't do. It's just an example. So I see the sunflower growing in front of Prajna and some karma ripens and in terms of the feeling aggregate and I have a pleasant feeling. Mm -hmm. Then I keep thinking about that sunflower and I have the thought, I want that sunflower plant. So there's craving. Mm -hmm. And then I have the thought, I'm going to dig it up and plant it in front of Ananda so that affliction of craving then produces the karma, the mental intention of wanting to take that sunflower plant to steal it. Hmm. To steal it, yeah. Then, and this is where I'm not sure, that mental intention creates a neutral karmic seed at that point that is placed on my mental continuum. Yeah, the karmic seed is neutral, but it's... It is a seed of negative karma. Yes. So just having that thought, I'm going to do that, places that seed there? Yeah. Okay. You know, especially if you're thinking about it again and again again. and planning, you know, you're going to go do it in the middle of the night when my tree's asleep. Well, we're going to get to that part. Okay. (laughs) So then the four branches are first the object. So what's what first? What's what's the uh, the negativity. Which of the ten is it? It's stealing. It's stealing. Okay, because you you've actually you're gonna go. You have gone and dug it up 
and well, moved it. Not yet. So, but the object is well. If you haven't dug it up, mm-hmm. then it's the mental action of covetousness. Right. But now, for this, these four branches to be in place. Yeah. For which action? For stealing. Stealing. You need to do the action. Right. So the first of all is I have to identify the object, which right. is going to be that sunflower right. in front of Prajna. Uh-huh. We'll call it yours. Yeah. And then it's not mine. I know, but just for the sake of this, yes. Okay. And so then I have to correctly identify it, the attitude. So I position the shovel by that particular plant. And then the poisonous attitude in my mind is attachment. Mm-hmm. And then. Um, I decide I'm going to take that plant tonight at 9.30 p.m. in the dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do it at 10 o'clock, too. Okay. So then the action is I do dig up that plant, mm-hmm. and I put it in the black toboggan, and I take it over to Ananda, and I replant it in the ground, and I'm rejoicing because now that plant's mine and not yours. Yes. And Upeka gives you a dirty look. Yeah. So I've completed, the four branches are complete. Yes. And I've committed the act of stealing. Yes. And the karmic path of stealing has been created. Yes. Which could take me to a future lower rebirth if I don't purify it. Mm -hmm. And the action of stealing places the neutral seed. Yeah, you don't say the neutral seed. okay. You just say it plants the seed of stealing. Okay. Yeah, you don't have to say neutral seed. Yeah. You say, I'm walking on the carpet. You don't say, I'm walking on the neutral carpet. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) I was just, when I mentioned that the seeds are neutral, it was because many people in what they were saying had called the seeds virtuous or non-virtuous. And that's uh, not exactly correct. Okay? Good. That was good that you actually went through something and made an example. Yeah. Yeah. And Upeka is disappointed in you. <laughs> because if you took something, it should have been cat food. <laughs> yes. Uh, I have one question, and there's a few questions in mind. Uh, so when it says the lack of an antidote um, about how someone who's lived ethically um, and is respectful and has knowledge of the Dharma, then the action will be lighter. Uh-huh. That seems to be contradictory to something else that I thought I'd been taught around um, people who break their precepts. Like Actions are heavier for those who have precepts that break them than those who do the same action if they don't Yeah, actually, when they talk about that, Uh, you get two different answers and they both make sense. So one is, people will say, if you have precepts, yeah, the negative karma, if you do something non-virtuous, the karma is heavier because you have broken a precept and your motivation had to be stronger to overcome the resistance of the precept. So it's heavier. But they also say that if you have precepts, it's very likely that the karma will be lighter because you will purify. And because uh, you've been creating a lot of virtue in your mind, 
that negativity doesn't affect your mind as much. Okay, so it, it, we're coming to it where it says if you put like uh, a tablespoon of salt in a small cup, it makes a big difference. If you put it in a swimming pool, it doesn't. So if somebody is, you know, in general acting virtuously and they do something non-virtuous, then in that way it's said to be, it'll be lighter. Okay? So you get both answers. Thank and you. they're both right. Thank you. And they say what well, sounds like opposite things. But it's not. <laughs> then? Uh, so Sydney Cohen is asking, so good ethical conduct is not only verbal and physical, but also mental. That is, yes. we have to clean up our ethical conduct mentally? Yes. And if you clean it up mentally, then automatically your verbal and physical conduct will get cleaned up. Because all the physical and verbal non-virtues come because of the mind moving, the mind going in a negative direction. And then... Uh Fosa Singapore asks, how can we help animals or pets to have a better rebirth in their next life, or even the mosquito who comes to us for a short time? Do we chant Om Mani Padme Hum? Yeah, it's good you chant mantra and you blow on them, or you, you know, do your, uh, your recitations out loud so that they hear them. So this is the power of the holy object. Or you take them, you know, you walk the cats around the Buddha image there, around any of our buildings that have uh, Buddha statues in them. Yeah, you show them the altar. Another question from Posta Singapore is, um, so she was com they're commenting on Venerable Sumpton's example, saying that this question relates to last week's teaching and can Venerable please explain again about the three mental states that are only karmic paths that have arisen from afflictions and that they are not karma? That, that are originally? That, can you explain how the three mental states are karmic paths that have arisen from afflictions but they're not karma? Can you explain that again? Okay, because karma is an action and those mental states are the afflictions. Okay, so the definition of those, those three destructive ones is that they're, they're a strong uh, type of a particular affliction. So by definition, they're afflictions. If something is an affliction, it cannot be karma because the two uh, are, uh, don't have anything which is both. Yeah. Okay, they're mutually exclusive. Yeah. To go back to giving a small gift for a big one, um, mm -hmm. for monastics, I, I personally, I have given small gifts after I received um, um, maybe support. Um, oh, yeah. Um, so. Yeah, and we do, and at the Abbey, we'll give people a gift from the Abbey. The key here is what is your intention? Is it you just want to say thank you? Then that's fine, no problem. But when your mind is saying, I'll give them a small gift, then they'll give me a big one. That's 
the yeah the wrong livelihood. And then I'd like to share something um, what I learned in Taiwan about habits, building negative habits. It was quite something for me. Um, I was sitting uh, in the lectures every day and could not understand the Chinese, and the speakers have been right above me. So I wanted to make use of the time, so I was reading uh, a Vinaya book in English during that time. Um, but the speakers were so loud, so that it was so disturbing that I could not focus. And then I thought, okay, I put earplugs in my ear. <laughs> and so, but then I thought, that sounds somehow strange. And then I uh, couldn't think for myself, and I asked via somebody, uh, one of the guides, um, and she said, no, don't do that because you will develop a habit. Don't do what? Do that. Put Don't do put oh, earplugs. Put, you, do will ear, put, you, you will uh, develop a habit. And I never thought of that, you know, kind of. Uh -huh. it's, it seemed to be such a small action, um, but it can lead to further similar actions. And uh -huh. we are listening to the Dharma, even so I can't understand that. And uh -huh. locking... Um, Blocking my ears, you know, uh -huh. it's not a good thing yeah. to do. <laughs> yeah. She was saying better to have the imprint, yeah. even though you don't understand, because in a future life. I had some reasons, will. good reasons maybe too, and, but yeah, still, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Thank you. Okay, this will be the last one. So a follow-up question to the explanation you just gave about the mental non-virtues. Someone is asking, so does that mean that afflictions are the root of our intentions? Afflictions accompany intentions. Okay, they're both mental factors, and uh, in any mental, uh, when you have mental consciousness, it's going to have accompanying mental faction, factors. Uh, it will have a mental factor of intention. And then within that consciousness, if you have an affliction, then that affliction is what will, uh, you know, influence the intention and will uh, turn the whole mental state virtuous or non-virtuous. Okay. Okay. <laughs>